So we're very pleased again to have Diana Gibson and from the Parkland Institute, and I hope that you have some uh, well thought out questions to ask her. Well, let's welcome Diana back. Um, just for those who are uh, curious, <clears throat> I didn't talk much about what the Parkland Institute is. Uh, we're a research institute based at the University of Alberta. We don't get any government or university funding. We're funded by individuals, organizations, and an endowment, a wealthy individual who's funding my position, which is great. So we're quite independent. But we are part of the university. So the research we publish is University of Alberta published, U of A, and it's peer-reviewed. So it has to be peer-reviewed by PhD academics to meet academic standards. So when we re release reports, um, unlike some of the other think tanks, like the Fraser Institute and things, they, they can release whatever. We have to release it as a U of A, University of Alberta publication. So our, our work is all peer-reviewed. Um, and the reports that we did on the Health Act are available um, outside for free. There's one that talks about the risks, and there's one that talks about the opportunities. And in the opportunities we document, we talked about ways we could improve health care and um, the path forward that we heard from people on the ground in Alberta and that we saw from the research. So those two, you can get those. And I also have copies of my book on private health insurance for sale if you want, and I can give them to you afterwards. So, questions? Um, awesome, Fennel. Thanks very much for your address. It's good. Um, I have a question about um, the ratio of, uh, about the physician, people being admitted for medical training. Is there some kind of ratio that applies, and who sets that? I somehow or other have a feeling that's connected with wait, waiting time in the emergency room. Would you like to comment? That's a great question. Uh, and, and it's especially great because as we were doing these consultations and the government was hearing from the people on the ground that the top concern they had and that what we heard, the top concern was access to a family doc. Um, in the last budget, the government cut funding to a lot of programs, and you guys, you know, as part of SACPA, I'm sure, are aware of the social programs that were cut, um, at, you know, anti-poverty programs, housing, um, uh, people with disabilities, um, seniors, uh, lots of programs were cut across the board. But one of them they cut, they didn't give post-secondary education um, the, the money they needed, and there were cuts. And what did the, the um, University of Alberta do, and a lot of universities across the province? Medical school tuition went up, and the number of seats was cut. So last budget, just last April, the University of Alberta cut the number of seats for medical doctors in the university because the government cut funding. And so you've got this beautiful policy document, this nice vanilla soft Alberta Health Act that says all these nice things. And the left hand over here is cutting education funding, raising medical school tuitions, and cutting the number of seats. So the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. And I think it's really important for us and for SACPA to draw those connections. Because, you know, the other thing they talk about in this health act is social determinants of health. It's, it's one of their key 10 new principles in this beautiful new health act that the social determinants of health. Well, what about them? Because in the last budget, they gave health care a 6% increase and they cut every social determinant of health. They did. They cut funding to almost everyone. So, um, so, you know, I think for me, and I'm a bit of a nerd, so for me, the rubber meets the road on policy when you look at the budget. 
They can say all they want about public health and about social determinants of health and about the number of family docs and how their hands are tied. But in the budget, you can see exactly what they're doing. Not what they're saying, what they're doing. And in the budget, they cut the number of family docs. So um, I'm not exactly sure what the policies, I don't know if somebody in here knows um, how the Medical Association, I know the, the Alberta Medical Association is linked into setting the number of seats. Um, but we are caught in a bit of a vicious cycle on family docs because uh, medical school tuitions are through the roof. So doctor salaries keep going up. Um, and as those doctor salaries go up, the, ma- the amount we have to pay to take them out of the, the operating room and teach students how to do surgeries and train medical students goes up. So the cost of training medical students goes up. As that cost goes up and doctor salaries keep going up, we're in this vicious cycle. And one of the things they need to do is stop university tuitions. Cap them and get them down so that people can afford to go into medical school. And then they have to open up the number of seats. And it'll be a long process because you can only train so many docs per year, and that's linked to how many docs we have. Because we also, we're also in a crisis in the, um, in the emergencies and in the ORs and in the specialists. We need those docs practicing, not teaching. So who's going to do the instruction if we are at a crisis shortage of, of doctors? So there's only so many um, doctors available to train new students. And there's so many, only so many training placements available. And it's, a, and it's a slow process to turn that ship around. But we, we, we should at least start. And the starting place is funding the university and making sure we at least increase, not cut, the number of seats we've got today. And that's an easy place to start, um, capping tuitions. And as I said, Norway which is similar to Alberta, has university tuition is free. And that's not something in, in you know ridiculous pie in the sky. That's something Alberta could do if they wanted to. Gene Alexa, thank you for your presentation. It was very good. I have more of a comment, and it's just about Canadians in general in regards to health care. Why, in your view, are we so apathetic? I, I would think in other countries in Europe, we'd be marching in the streets and... Uh, Etc. Every protests going on, but it seems like we just sit back and uh, don't do anything about it. I'd like to hear your comments. Uh, well, I think yeah, it's a great question, and it is. I think it comes to the heart of the issue: is how do we, why do we have such apathy, and not just on healthcare, but I mean, it applies to anti-poverty issues. We have children. You know, there's on the first day of school, my friend who is a teacher has a little girl come into school that day, and all she had in her hand was a can of, a can of pop. For an entire day at school, she'd had no breakfast, and her lunch is a can of pop. You know, and we live in a province that can afford to do so much better, and yet we're not. So why do we have that level of apathy? You know, on a day like today, I would say it's because it's cold. <laughs> but uh, um, I, I, it's, a, it's a difficult question to answer, and, and I think that you know, we need more, a lot more public discussion and research around it. My hypothesis, and I I open the floor up to anybody else who wants to comment on this question, because I think it's a really important discussion for us to have. My hypothesis would be that um, we we live in a petocracy. It is not a properly democratic province. We have a government that spies on its citizens, the EUB scandal. We have a government that denies science, like Schindler's research on water in the Athabasca, that... that, um, that undermines the doctor in the community of Fort Chip who said there was a cancer cluster and gets false um, um, complaints made to the medical association and tries to disbar him. They were all dismissed, but they still continue to, um, to, to try and, and, and undermine 
Schindler and the doctor, and you know they had to admit, put out a public apology about Kevin Timoney's research. So, uh, you know, we have a government that is very beholden, and um, and you know, anytime somebody wins in, in an opposition, you'll see the electoral boundaries redone, and it's, and maybe redone more than once. <laughs> Um, you know, it's not an easy province to be an opposition member in, and it's not an easy... An easy you know, I did a royalties report um, uh, in 2007 that was critical of the panel's um, recommendations and recommended that we go much further. And I was brought back from maternity leave to be audited by the university as a result because of the incredible criticism they got and because they, frankly, get a lot of money from oil and gas. Um, it's not an easy province to do that kind of thing in. And so I think that's the question we have to have is, why? Um, and... And it may be that the apathy isn't so much apathy as disheartedness um, because there's a sense that why bother? You know, we're not going to be able to influence the voting results, so why bother voting? Because, frankly, they're going to win anyway. Um, our vote doesn't count, so why bother? Because my vote doesn't count. We don't have proportional representation, and so a lot of people think, why bother? Why bother working on electoral campaigns? Why bother running or why bother voting? Um, and the same with working on advocacy, demonstrations, engaging in community and citizenship. And the reason I have this hypothesis is because um, in my own community, it's a fairly educated community, I see a lot of people engaged in their, in their local city community league. I see a lot of people engaged on their parent council. They're volunteering actively for the community school, for their preschool, for the community league. They're doing fundraisers, they're doing events, they're doing outreach, they're doing education. But they're not engaging at bigger levels. And it may be a sense of, of whether or not they have any influence or power or powerlessness. But that's just a theory. I don't know if anybody else has comment on why this sense of what we can do to overcome that sense of apathy. for your uh, bundle of information and I appreciate your passion as your well. Um, you pointed, name. My name is Terry Schillinger. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, you pointed out that one of the central claims of uh, the Conservative Party is that we can't afford this monstrosity and therefore we have to cut back. And I'd like to hear some more about that. So I'd like to ask a question sort of from the perspective of the devil's advocate. But um, some of the, a lot of those graphs rolled by us very quickly. But the last one, which we looked at during lunch, was the social spending graph. And I was just mindful of the discussion uh, that I read about in McLean's magazine, for example, in which many are saying the social spending in Europe is out of control. And uh, McLean's recently had an article on Europe throwing a tantrum, for example. Uh, pension uh, ages too low and uh, benefits too high. And um, so... Uh, France is one of those, uh, at the top of your graph and uh, at the top of that, the, that debate, the tantrum. So it would be interesting to hear you comment on that. Yeah, another great question. Uh, absolutely, um, the same forces that would like to see smaller government here are pushing for smaller government in Europe. And they're under the same challenges, pressures to privatize, pressures to reduce their um, taxation and spending levels. And, uh, and we have a great presentation done by a Norwegian speaker at our conference we did last year. And he spoke about the recession. And so one of the things that I use in response to that question is Norway which has a much higher tax level than we do, a much higher social spending than we do, not at the top. They're sort of in the top third. Uh, they entered the recession later than we did. They had a gentler recession, 
And they, they had, in April of last year, they had the highest consumer confidence in the OECD. And the, he, this Norwegian would say the reason they did was because they had a larger public sector, which stabilizes the economy. Alberta went like this, took a massive nosedive, um, and was leading the nation in recession indicators. And he, um, he would argue that a bigger public sector actually helps to stabilize an economy, makes it less volatile, less vulnerable to external kicks. Um, also, Norway has, as I mentioned, they've got a, a solid um, set of continuing care programs and access to care for seniors. And they have all of their oil money goes into a fund. They don't put any of their oil and gas money into general revenues. It all goes into their heritage fund, which is called their pension fund, which funds pensions. They have $400 billion U.S. in their pension fund right now. And so what happened was, this: if you think about it, in Norway, the consumers look at the recession and think, my retirement income is secured. My health care as a senior is secured. They are much, much more secure. They have income security in their key earning years that we don't have. And so they're spending. They're going out and spending. And, they're, and they're, their economy is rolling. And ours is not. And it's because they have that kind of security. So the, the forces, and, and I just want to say a couple of words about what those forces are that talk about government is too big, spending is too high. And it comes, have you guys heard of Grover Norquist? Anybody? Grover Norquist. He's a right-wing um, think, thinker in the States. Got a lot of influence on the Bush government, had a lot of influence on the Bush government. He's part of the sort of right-wing think tank movement. And his um, influence on right-wing theory was that government was needed to be smaller because the bigger government was, the less room for the private sector. And the private sector doesn't have that many places to go. They used to be able to run off to the colonies and conquer and exploit and make a lot of money. But that's been done. And the biggest sort of um, uh, frontier for them right now is the public sector. It's the new frontier for private investment. It's a place to make a lot of money. And so they want in. So Grover Norquist said, okay, we need to make government small. And he said, our goal is going to be to make government small enough that we can drown it in the bathtub. That's his goal. And it's been, and this is part of the, the big right-wing think tanks and, and, the, and the movements in the United States, very connected. Uh, and then he, they, they had this debate about, okay, so how do we do it? How do we make government small enough that we can drown it in a bathtub? And the answer, he said, was starve the beast. Starve the beast, which means starve the government of tax revenue, and then it has to shrink. And so they had to target taxes and demonize taxes in order to achieve their goal. And that's why they never say taxes. They say tax burden or tax relief because taxes needed to be demonized. Uh, and so their goal. So I think that this, this movement against healthcare and public spending in Europe is part of that same right-wing movement. And he, the speaker from Norway, he works with the, an, an association very similar to SACPA in Norway, um, spoke about this. And his PowerPoint's up on our website at Parkland. And he spoke about this and said it's the exact same forces of pressure to privatize in Europe as here. And the same story. And, but if you look at the real data, he would say that in fact, their social spending and their taxation levels prote protected them from the Great Recession. Ms. Gibson, uh, I don't know. My name's Frank Toth. I'm the Gabby one in the crowd here. But anyway, I have never heard so much knowledge, so many facts in my life. <laughs> 
and I researched for over 70 years. 70 years. It's unbelievable. I don't know why you're not in politics. <laughs> I don't know why you're not so healthy God. But anyway, I just want to relate. An event took place about two weeks ago locally. The health care people honored the top man of the Chinook Health Area here. I, 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 maybe you can help me on his name. I forget. Jack okay, okay. You honored him. This is the man. I had to move the Milk River right on the border a little while ago because my wife didn't have Medicare. She's from the States. This man came around to announce a, announce a new health care system, and I personally got up. I'm an ex-remaining live hospital board member. All right? I asked him, Mr. Eddie, okay, when are we going to get some of our locally elected hospital representatives again? He said, that's a good question. He said, as a matter of fact, we're going to have two in the next, this coming year, and then we're going to have 50% in a few years. But you know how honest the governor and the representatives are. It's unbelievable. And, but I, I heard you say that you, your universe and you personally uh, cal calibrated whatever. I'm sorry, my key is bad. But anyway, about the royalty system, you keep talking about Norway, Sweden, they get 14%. I have a letter from the Auditor General that the, March the 31st, we have received one and a half to two and a half percent royalties on oil. Okay? I'd like to get your version of it now. Okay? How much royalties are we getting? They're getting 14%. No wonder they can have free education, free childcare. What is our true royalties? I think, yeah, I think there's two parts to the story in Norway, um, which one is uh, that, they, that they save all of their royalty revenue, and the other is that they capture in the 90% range as compared to us, which in the low 50s, if not maybe 40s. Um, actually, we're even lower because that's our target, and we never actually achieve our target. So, uh, so I think you're right that the, that the gap between what they collect and what we collect, and investors are banging down their door to get in. So... Um, it's not as if it's driving away investment. In fact, Norway had this one deal that they offered to an investor, and they said, we want you to come in. We'll do a joint venture, half owned by us, half owned by you. And then you have to leave in a few years, but first you have to teach us everything you know. <laughs> that sounds like a bit of a raw deal. But you know what? The profits were still good enough that the investor took it. They went in, and they invested in the oil and gas, and they transferred their technology to the Norwegian government, and then they left. And it was still worth it because the profits are that good. So Alberta certainly still has this hangover, a painful hangover from the colonial days. And we still behave like a colony. In spite of talking about being a superpower, we behave like a colony as if we have to beg them to come here. And it's not just in our royalties. I mean, our taxes. If you look at most other nations that have the kind of resource bounty we have, they would recognize that companies are coming to Alberta because of our resource wealth. And for that, you charge a tax premium, not a tax discount. Last week, in Nigeria, a bunch of oil and gas workers were taken hostage. We charge lower royalties than Nigeria. Their workers were just taken hostage. And we charge lower royalties to the same companies. Uh, so I think you're right that Alberta has... Uh, Parkland is releasing a report next week on profits in the oil and gas sector. 
watch for it. Uh, it's, I think it's going to be called, uh, How Much is Too Much? Extraordinary Profits in Oil and Gas. And um, it'll tell you some of that story about how much money the industry's made over the past 10 years, including during the recession. So it'll be a bit of an eye-opener. And I haven't run for politics. <laughs> I get asked often to do so, but I haven't. I have a two-year-old, a four-year-old, and a six-year-old. And uh, I have a great job. <laughs> Thanks very much. My name is Knut uh, Peterson. Good of you to come down in this weather. Uh, my question is... Uh, where does the United States pressure from the United States fit into this whole scenario about healthcare, free sort of free healthcare in Canada when they don't have it down there? That's a great question, and it ties us back to that European model. So Danielle Smith is talking about how we're going to follow the European path, and I say to Danielle Smith, "Who are we integrating our market with? Norway, Finland?" Sweden, New Zealand, Australia? No. We are next door to the United States. We are integrating our healthcare market with the United States. If we open the market up to private investors, are we going to have Finnish HMOs investing here? No. It will be American HMOs. We are if we open that door, don't be fooled that there's a European company waiting. It is American companies that want in. And it is American companies that are here already and that will be expanding. So, you know, that, uh, that's, I think that's really important is to recognize the incredible influence of the American markets on healthcare, and the incredible power that those large corporations, pharmaceutical and delivery side, have on, um, on governments and the pressure that they have in lobbying on the Alberta and Canadian governments. And so I think when we talk about Europe, we need to recognize that it is the United States that wants in, not Europe. Thanks, too, Diane. I'm Mary Shillington. And you made a statement I thought, oh, I'd like to have some more information about this. Alberta's highest out-of-pocket for health care. Al Albertans pay the highest out-of-pocket. Can you say more about that, how, how we're doing that, how it's showing up, and so on? Um, that, I think that's a, each of these questions are fantastic. <laughs> the, uh, the issue of out-of-pocket spending, and um, Parkland has a fact sheet, two pages, simple fact sheet on spending. So it's not just health care. We have the highest out-of-pocket spending on child care, water, sewage, insurance, auto insurance, um, utilities, um, recreation, education, K-12. So we're in the top for a whole bunch of areas of out-of-pocket spending. And the thing that they have in common, most of them, is that they've been deregulated or privatized for the most part. Uh, and in healthcare, um, I have a good story that illustrates why costs are so much higher out of pocket. A friend of mine is an optometrist, and the government deinsured vision care. And at first, he was devastated because he said to me, I'm going to lose half my practice. People aren't going to be able to afford it. How can they do this to me? And then a little while later, I saw him, and he was happy. And I was like, so, why are you happy? He said, because I realized that the cap is going to be lifted on what I can charge. So I can see half the patients charge twice as much and surf in the Wood River twice as much. And the guy is three days a week down in the, in the Hood River windsurfing. And he's happy as a clam. And vision care costs went up 17% in the first year. Um, so that's why when they delist and de-insure services, 
costs go through the roof. And that's why dental care, which was never included, costs go up and up and up because there isn't a, a publicly regulated cap on what they can charge. And so um, out-of-pocket, and I think that's part of what's driving out-of-pocket spending. There's two pieces I think are driving it. One is seniors' access to care. So the, de- the unbundling and the um, downgrading of facilities from long-term care to designated assisted living and the charging for more and more fees and, and services. That's one of the big, big drivers of costs. And the other is delisting and deinsuring services that were previously covered, like chiro, physio, massage, stuff like that. Um, so I think those are a couple of pieces of the puzzle of why it's so expensive for Albertans. To think about the answer on that one. Um, I haven't sat down and compared the platforms um, uh, recently of the opposition parties, the NDP and the Liberals. Um, so I can't comment on specifics within their party agendas. What I can comment on more generally is that I haven't seen any political parties speak about tax increases. Um, I think that the, the Liberals are still saying that we have a spending problem, which my data shows we don't. We might be able to spend it more efficiently. Like, frankly, I think we shouldn't be putting money into carbon capture and storage for the oil sands. The industry can pay for it. But um, we don't have a spending problem. We have a revenue problem. Um, I think the NDP have acknowledged that we have a revenue problem and are pushing for us to return to a more progressive tax system. I think that's a great start. I think that the public needs to push all political parties to be accountable for um, taxes are the, the cost of a civilized society. Ca- taxes are the cost we pay to live in safe engaged communities with health care, education, and roads. Um, and I think that no political party is talking enough about what we get in the public system, what government does for us. The, public, the private sector is, is mired in scandal, fraud. I mean, you see it all the time. Healthcare corporations actually found guilty of fraud. Um, and, uh, and the whole financial crisis. I mean, look at all of the fraud and scandal in the private sector. And the government actually delivers well on accountability, quality, and efficiency. Uh, and I think that we need our political parties to take more of a stand as we elect them to govern us. It is their job to govern us. And they should be speaking proudly of what government does for the people. And I think all of our political parties need to take, do a better job of that because um, our, as a society, you know, crit- constantly allowing government to be empty critici- criticisms, empty criticisms of government while the private sector walks off with the lion's share of the wealth is, is a system that needs to change. And, and I don't see any political party tackling that head on. And I think we need to see more of that. Last question. Diane, I'd like to commend you. Uh, on the information you have presented here today. Thank you very much. Now, Alberta government has been trying. My name is Balbura. For the last 17 years, Alberta government has been trying and getting at it in waves. And you have presented some of those things there. I'm just wondering how much ground have they gained since that time? in privatizing, like mm-hmm. hip and knee and all that, and cataract and, and labs, and what percentage of the budget is already that? 
Um, I have seen a study that that listed everything that had been introduced in the way of private for-profit involvement, but I haven't seen anything that gave it a figure in terms of the percentage of our delivery system today. Um, so I think that's a good question, and I don't have the answer for it. Uh, but I, and the fact that I don't is kind of shameful because we should be watching more carefully. It is a sort of quiet encroachment. Um, and we watch the private surgeries. They're loud. Everybody's talking about how HRC in Calgary has gone bankrupt. But on the, on the continuing care and, um, and home care, and a lot of those places, there's a ton of privatization. Like when the government announced their new long-term care funding program, what did the Alberta government do? They actually cut home care assessment staff. They actually, uh, the government announces a new funding bucket and the provincial government cut home care assessment staff so that it would be done by the private sector. And I think we don't have enough spotlight on those kinds of privatizations and we should be making sure that we put it all together in one place. Um, and also, I think that we need to be, and, and this leads to the, the next election, in the last budget, the government cut... Um, you know, we, the, the, we won in terms of health care. There was a big campaign to fight against health care cuts, and the government gave them a 6% increase, which is cost of living um, and population growth. Um, and they committed that for next year. That's great. But as SACPA, you know, you guys know it came at the cost. They didn't raise the total budget. They cut in a whole bunch of areas where people didn't have a voice. And, and I think it, it's going to be really important in the next budget for that same conversation to happen of us keeping the spotlight on the other side. You know, the key social determinant of health is poverty. And if they're going to, you know, raise health care on one side and cut programs to low-income people on the other, then they've accomplished nothing. And so I think the lesson we learned in the last round is you can't advocate very loudly for health care. You have to advocate very loudly for all programs, social programs together. And we have to work in conjunction as a social movement with education, anti-poverty, and healthcare as a broader social movement. Because otherwise, you gain one place, lose in another. And so as we go into the next budget, I think it's going to be really important to keep having those conversations. Well, let's all thank Diana Gibson for her great talk. <laughs>